<laughs> All right, would you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. All right, I'm going to be referring to this as we go through the text. We're actually going to spend time in Matthew, Luke, and John this morning as we work our way through the story. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful day that we can meet. We come to worship you on a Sunday morning, and we come to hear from your word. And I pray today as we look at Jesus, and we just think about the wonder of his birth and his coming to earth to be our Savior, that you would again fill our hearts with awe and wonder. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by asking you a question this morning, uh, just kind of one of these trivia things, but how many of you have seen Niagara Falls? How many have seen Niagara Falls? Okay, a large number of people here. And do you remember what you felt like the first time you saw it? And for those who haven't been there yet, I remember the first time I went to Niagara Falls was shortly after I graduated from college. Gail was working at the University of Buffalo with Campus Crusade, and I went there to see her, and we went out to see Niagara Falls. And it was more awesome than I had even imagined in my mind. I mean, I knew it was big, but it was really big. And when you stand next to the falls where the water is going over, you literally can feel the earth tremble. You hear the sound of the thunder as the water hits the bottom and the mist rises up and it's just this sensory experience that's hard to describe. But it is awesome. It is an amazing sight. And when I stood there, I was thinking about, you know, things that had happened there in the past, like Blondin, the tightrope walker who stretched a, you know, a tightrope across Niagara Falls and walked across. And I'm thinking, how did he do that? I mean, that just seems crazy. And then I thought of the barrel riders, the guys who would be, you know, pounded into a big barrel, you know, and, and they seal that thing down and then they send them over the falls. And I'm going, were those guys nuts? You know, you talk about an adrenaline rush and people that were trying to do things like that. And it's just amazing. All these things came to mind. And then a few years later, I was watching one of those uh, specials, probably National Geographic channel, you know, where they were talking about Niagara Falls. And they said that today the volume of water going over the falls is only one-fourth of what it once was. Just one-fourth. And I'm going, man, if it's this awesome with just 25% of the volume of water... Can you imagine what it would have been like when it was there in all of its glory? You know, I think about that with Jesus, too. When Jesus came to earth, his glory was veiled. We sing about that in the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We sing those words, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. You know, there were times in his ministry when we read in the Gospels how his glory would shone through and the disciples would be in awe of him, like times when he healed the sick or he cast out demons and raised the dead. Times when he could say to the wind and the waves, be still, and they were still. And then most of all, on that Mount of Transfiguration, when John and Peter and James saw his glory shine through. And they were in awe of who Jesus was. You know, the writers of the New Testament strained to describe what he was like. 
And I think about that. What will it be like to see Jesus in all of his glory? Today we're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament in our journey through the Bible. And we come to these passages in the Gospels that talk about his birth. Well, today is a Christmas message, but it is a Christmas message without the pressure of Christmas. There's no pageants to get ready for. There's no shopping you need to do. No presents you need to buy and wrap. No uh, cleaning that needs to be done at home for all of the guests that are going to come. None of the hassles of Christmas. Today there's just Jesus. And I like that. We're going to have a Christmas message that just focuses on Jesus, who he is, and what he has done for us. There are three Gospels that talk about his birth, Matthew, Luke, and John. And I'd like to look at what each one adds to this picture of Jesus. I don't think I've ever done a message where I've gone through all three Gospels at the same time together, but it is really a rich, composite picture of who Jesus is. We're going to start with Matthew, and I'd like to read for us verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, A virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. What Matthew tells us is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. He's the one that we have been waiting for. There's a reason that Matthew's gospel comes first out of all the gospels and that it is the most Jewish of the gospels. Matthew quotes and alludes to the Old Testament prophecies more than any other book in the New Testament. And Matthew's purpose is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah by going back and taking all of these passages in the Old Testament that referred to Jesus and his coming to earth. And he tells us that all of the prophecies concerning the Messiah find their fulfillment in Jesus. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus shows that he is the son of David in chapter 1. And you can think of David and that promise that was made to him that, David, you are going to have a son whose kingdom will never end. His throne will endure forever. That wasn't Solomon. That wasn't any of the kings who sat on the throne of Judah in their lifetime. It was a reference to the Messiah, the one who would come and reign forever. He is from the tribe of Judah, and there's a reference to that in Genesis 49.10, that the scepter would not depart from Judah. This right to rule would not depart from Judah 
until the one came whose right it is. Until Shiloh comes, the one whose right it is to rule. And what's interesting about that historically is that during the lifetime of Jesus between his birth and his crucifixion, Rome took away from the Jews the right to do capital punishment. And the Jews, when they looked at that, they had to have the right to do capital punishment in order to carry out their law, they believed. And we have a record of one of the rabbis who said, Woe to us, for the scepter has departed from Judah and the Messiah has not yet come. They didn't know that he had indeed come. They did not recognize him. Matthew tells us that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And you can think of the promise that was made to Abraham that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. There would come this one, this seed of Abraham, singular, this person who would come who would be a blessing to all peoples. And Matthew is saying he is now here. The birth of Christ, Matthew tells us about it, that Jesus was born of a virgin in fulfillment of the prophecy given by Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14 that the virgin would be with child and give birth to a son. He tells us that he would be called Jesus, Yeshua. Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And just like Joshua in the Old Testament, he would be a deliverer. He'd be a, a savior, a leader of his people. Only Jesus would save his people from their sins. He would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not God with us in the sense of he's distant and okay, I'm with you guys and I hope it goes well for you out there. But God with us. God in our midst. God present with us. In human form. Jesus. He would be born in Bethlehem. Micah the prophet had told us that in Micah 5 too, that he would be born in this small little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the city of David. Bethlehem means house of bread and here the one who is called the bread of life would be born. And Matthew tells us that he is the king of Israel but he is a king for all people. It's interesting that even though Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels, Matthew is the one who tells us about these magi who come from afar, these Gentiles who come, and they have seen his star, and they have come to worship this newborn king. And it is Matthew who records the Great Commission that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. And so here, Matthew is saying he is not just the king of Israel, but he is a king for all people, all nations. And go and tell that good news. We come to Luke's gospel and we see another picture of Jesus. And there is overlap on all of these, but each has their distinction. When we come to Luke's gospel, we see that he emphasizes Jesus' humanity and his humility. Jesus is fully man. He came to earth to be like us. He took upon himself human flesh, and we get a picture of the reality of that. When the angel came to Mary, we read about it in Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 26. It says, In the sixth month God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. 
And the angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered, and may it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Luke emphasizes Jesus' humanity and humility. We read that Jesus was born to a teenage mother. She is betrothed, but the wedding has not yet taken place. And here the angel comes and tells her that basically you are going to be like an unwed mother in the sense that you are going to have a child without ever having intercourse with any man. She will be the subject of disgrace and ridicule by some. I mean, who would believe her? Who would believe her story? Nothing like this had ever happened. Yet Mary trusted God and obeyed and said, I am the Lord's servant. Her faith is remarkable. She is this teenage girl. We don't know her exact age. Maybe she's 16. You know, she's at that time. And yet here she is, a woman of great faith. And I will say that for us we are, who are Protestants, that we don't worship Mary. And we don't pray to her, and we shouldn't. That is not taught anywhere in the Scriptures that we should do that. But we do honor her. And we do stand in amazement at her faith and obedience. That she heard what the angel said, and she believed, and she acted upon it. And her song of praise when she expresses her thoughts to God about that are just filled with Scripture as she pours out her heart to God. Jesus would be born to an ordinary Joe, if you will. His name was Joseph. But he's just an ordinary guy. He is a carpenter. He was a good man and he was a righteous man. And he too didn't understand at first what was going on. When he found out that Mary was pregnant, he wanted to divorce her quietly. And we can understand that. If you put yourself in his place, you can understand how he was feeling. But when the angel came to him and told him, Joseph, don't be afraid to do this, and explained what had happened, and he had heard it from Mary, and now he had heard it from the angel, Joseph also believed. And he obeyed. And he stepped out in faith, trusting God. Jesus would be born in the lowest of circumstances. In chapter 2, you know the story that we read every Christmas. That in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, 
to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Jesus, again, is born into the lowest of circumstances. He wasn't born in a palace fit for a king. He wasn't born in a modern hospital like our children are or with all of the medical care that we have available. He wasn't even born in the Motel 6 of Jerusalem. There was no room for them at the inn. And when we think of an inn, sometimes we think of a nice, you know, kind of New England inn, you know, and it's nothing like that at all. There's no room. The only place that he can be born is in a stable, a damp, dark cave most likely at the back of the inn with cows and sheep and the smell of hay and manure with a feeding trough for his bed. Why? Why would God send his son into such lowly circumstances? Because that's the kind of world that Jesus was being born into. A world that was dark with sin. A world that would not receive him or know him. And he came to identify with us in our humanity. Luke tells us that he was wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger. Jimmy DeYoung talks about that, and you've heard me say at times too how significant it was that Bethlehem was the place where the lambs were born that were used in the temple as an offering. Or the lambs that were born that were sacrificed at Passover for the sins of the people. And here Jesus was born. What I didn't know that Jimmy DeYoung points out was that when a lamb was born, the shepherds would take that lamb and wrap him in cloths and place him in a manger to keep him from thrashing about to wound or injure himself because that lamb needed to be perfect and spotless in order to be one that could be used as a sacrifice for our sins. And I wonder what the shepherds thought when they came and they saw Jesus wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, like they had done many times before with the lambs that had been born. Here Jesus came as God's Son, the one who would be the sacrifice for our sins. He was born as a baby, tiny and helpless, God in human flesh. God, the creator of the universe, now held in his mother's arms. And Mary looked at his face and had to have wondered at all these things that she was now holding in her arms, this promised one, this hope of all the nations, Jesus who was born. Jesus' birth was truly humble. Jesus is humble enough to know what you've been through this week. He's humble enough to know what keeps you awake at night. He's humble enough to hear our prayers that we bring before Him. He's humble enough to hear the prayers of a rice farmer in China or a Quechuan woman in Peru or a Liberian immigrant in Minneapolis. He knows our needs and He can hear our prayers that we utter and bring before Him. 
Luke emphasizes his humanity, that Jesus became like us so he could offer himself as a sacrifice in our place. And then when we come to John's gospel, John's gospel to me is just so amazing in what it says about Jesus. John tells us that Jesus is fully God. And we read about that in John chapter 1. I'd like to read for us verses 1 to 5. John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He is talking about Jesus here. Jesus is the Word made flesh. And John emphasizes his deity. When John uses the word to describe Jesus, it really had kind of a double meaning at that time. It was a word that was used by the Gentiles, but it was also a word that was understood by the Jews as well. And I want you to think about both sides. When John used the term word to describe Jesus, that word was popular in Greek thought. We get our word logic or our word reason from it. The word in Greek is logos, logos. And Heraclitus, a philosopher in Ephesus, said that logos is the omnipotent wisdom that steers everything. And that was sort of this concept in Greek philosophy that logos, the word, was this thing that that just governed everything in our universe. Plato said that it may be that one day there may come forth from God a word that will reveal all mysteries. He spoke better than he knew. He's thinking about a word of knowledge in some way. And John's writing, and John has pointed to Jesus as that word who will reveal all mysteries. John used a word that the Jews would understand, and when he begins his gospel with those three words, in the beginning, what does that sound like? Sounds like the beginning of Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth. And that link is intentional that there is something so momentous that is occurring now that just like in the creation, when God started everything, Jesus is now entering into our world. How did God create the world? By His Word. He spoke and the worlds came into being. And what John is saying is that Jesus is that Word. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is unique. He is that second person of the Trinity. He was there with God before the worlds were made at the beginning of time. And he tells us in verse 3 that through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus is the living Word. He was there at creation. And John affirms His deity that He is fully God, that He is the Creator, and He affirms His preexistence. And that living Word became flesh. Verse 14, 
the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When He tells us that the Word became flesh, we understand that, this mystery of the Incarnation. But then He says that He made His dwelling among us. And the word that is used there is the word for tabernacle. It's the same word that was used in the Septuagint to describe what was going on in the Old Testament. God tabernacled among us. What does that bring to mind? It brings to mind that tabernacle that God had given the instructions to Moses to build. Exactly like the one in heaven. And I'm going to dwell in your midst. And I will be there at the very center of your camp. And when I move, you move. And when I stay, you stay. God will be with us. And now Jesus is God in human flesh. Right here, right now, in the midst of them. Full of grace and truth. In fact, in John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And we have seen him before in places throughout the Old Testament as we have journeyed in our story. Who was it that walked with Adam in the cool of the garden? We believe it was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And who was it that came to Joshua as commander of heaven's armies as they were about to enter the promised land? And who was it that stood with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and looked like a son of the gods? We believe it was Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. And Jesus would say of himself in John 8, 58, that truly I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. We sang about the great I am, that name of God that was given to Moses, and Jesus is declaring that I am. This Jesus is the one who was made flesh. He is not part man and part God. He is fully man and fully God. He came to show us what God is like, He came to restore the original vision and He came to win us back to God. Now I told you that this is a Christmas message and what Christmas message would be complete without a Christmas story? So here's one for you today. An elementary school was preparing to put on a great Christmas pageant for parents. All the important parts were given to the brightest students. The smartest girl was chosen to be Mary. The smartest boy played Joseph. I was going to kid, maybe that's why I was chosen to be Joseph. I'm not sure, but no. (laughs) The next smartest group played the three kings, the angels, and the shepherds. There was only one part no one wanted, the innkeeper. Who wanted to be the bad guy who turned Mary and Joseph away? They gave the part to a boy who was a little slower than the others, but had a big heart. And as the day for the big pageant approached, the boy playing the innkeeper began to worry. He couldn't imagine telling Mary and Joseph that there would be no room in the inn. So what was he going to do? Finally, it was curtain time. Parents, relatives, and friends packed the auditorium. 
They proudly watched the story unfold as their children skillfully carried out their important roles. And meanwhile, the innkeeper grew more and more anxious. The pressure mounted as Mary and Joseph approached. He didn't know what to do, but somehow he had caught a brief glimpse of the upper story. And when Mary and Joseph knocked on the door, the scruffy little innkeeper threw open the door and with a big smile shouted, Come on in! I've been expecting you! (laughs) And with that, the audience cheered and clapped and the play came to an end. You know, that's the way we'd like this story to end, isn't it? That's the way we'd like it to be. We'd like everybody to open up their heart to Jesus and welcome him in. But he didn't. And why didn't the innkeeper invite him in? We don't know. But could it be that simply his life was just too crowded? That he was so overwhelmed by all that was happening, by the crowd that had come to Bethlehem, overwhelmed by a census and visitors and overwhelmed by all of the demands that were being placed upon him to take care of their needs, that he just didn't have time. He didn't know this family and he didn't know that child that Mary carried in her womb. His life was crowded. Can anybody relate to that? Our lives are crowded too. We have headlines and deadlines. We have work to do and people to see. We've got children and their needs, and we have hobbies, we have special interests. We have homes and cars to keep up and bills to pay. And sometimes we say to Jesus, I don't have time. Maybe later, maybe someday. But if that's how you view Jesus, you are mistaken. Jesus didn't come to complicate our life. He came to simplify it. And when we put him first in our life, he gives order to everything else. And he fills us with his joy and his peace and his purpose in life. And we begin to see things more clearly. Jesus is the one who can bring order to your life if you will open up your heart to him. Do you have time for Jesus? Let's put him first in our life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you were willing to send your Son to be our Savior. Without Jesus, we'd be lost. We'd still be in our sins. We'd be separated from you. Father, today is a day of joy and rejoicing for those of us who know you because Jesus has changed all of that. And Father, I pray for those who are here today. If someone's here and you've never made that commitment to Christ as Savior and Lord, Would you do that today for the very first time and say to Jesus, I want you to be my Savior and I invite you to come into my life and forgive my sins. But for all of us, Lord, would you help us to be honest about our own relationship with you? Have we been too busy? Have we been pushing you into the back and just crowding you out and letting other things get in the way? Lord, help us to keep you first, to give you the time that you deserve and to live our life in a way that pleases you. Amen.